a special welcome to our uh, guest. If you're, if you're new here, and we'd love if you would take a Connect card, they're in the seat backs in front of you, and fill that out. That would be very, very helpful. We'd love for you to do that. And there are some opportunities at the bottom to take a next step. If today's the day that you put your trust in Christ, we'd love to know that. Or maybe you'd like to have lunch. Uh, I'd love a chance to meet you and hear your story, and I could share with you a little bit about our church. If you've been coming for a while, you might want to come to our Discover Good News. Uh, the, the dates are up there. Uh, if you're new and like to find out more about Good News, or if you'd like to make this your church home, you could check that and put the Wednesday or Saturday on there, and we would love to have you there. Hopefully, when you came in, you were given a study if you didn't get one last week. But it's really, really a, a great disciple-making tool, and we're studying, we're reading through the book of Matthew together. It's not too late to jump in, and uh, we can read through the New Testament together. <clears throat> Pick one up. Uh, today's a special service that uh, Strider uh, has been uh, elected as an elder in Good News Church. We believe the Bible uh, has an office called Elder, and he's coming today to be ordained and installed. So I'm going to invite Strider to come and stand in the middle and have all of our elders that are here. If you guys would come up and stand behind Strider, that would be great. Have our elders in the back. We have Strider who um, is going to take ordination vows, and uh, then we're going to ordain him and install him. So uh, now vows are really, really significant. So they're they're important. So listen as Strider takes these. Strider, do you believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testament, as originally given to be the inerrant Word of God, the only infallible rule of faith and practice? And do you sincerely receive and adopt the confession of faith um, and the catechisms of this church as containing the system of doctrine taught in the Holy Scriptures? And do you further promise that if at any time you find yourself out of accord with any of the fundamentals of this system of doctrine, you will on your own initiative make known to your session the change which has taken place in your views since the assumptions of this ordination vow? I do. Do you approve of the form of government and discipline of the Presbyterian Church in America in conformity with the general principles of biblical polity? I do. Do you accept the office of ruling elder in this church and promise faithfully to perform all the duties thereof and to endeavor by the grace of God to adorn the profession of the gospel in your life and to set a worthy example before the church of which God has made you an officer? I do. And do you promise subjection to your brethren in the Lord? I do. And do you promise to strive for the purity, peace, unity, and edification of the church? I do. Great. Now, if I could get you to kneel here, and if we could get our elders to come around and lay hands on you. Lord, you do not call the qualified, but you qualify the called. And Holy Spirit, fall fresh on Strider, Give him the desire and the ability to fulfill the office of ruling elder in our church. And uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we'd like to give you the right hand of fellowship. So, uh, you guys. 
I did that a little out of order. I was supposed to ask you as a congregation a question. <laughs> but I'm going to assume the vote. So Still do counts, you the right? <laughs> yes. We're going to start over? No, no. Okay. Do you, the members of the church, acknowledge and receive this brother as a ruling elder, and do you promise to yield to him all that honor, encouragement, and obedience in the Lord to which the office according to the word of God and the constitution of this church entitles him? And if you do, would you please stand just to indicate that? Sorry about getting that out of order. Thank you for standing to affirm that. That's really special. You, you may uh, sit down. Uh, I now pronounce and declare that Strider Stokes has been regularly elected, ordained, and installed as a ruling elder in this church, agreeable to the word of God, according to the constitution of the Presbyterian Church in America, and that in such he is entitled to all the encouragement, honor, and obedience in the Lord, in the name of our Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, I am to give you a charge. You know what a good leader is? A good follower. I love what Paul said. He said, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. So I would encourage you to keep doing what you're doing, keep following Jesus and inviting others to follow you. And you're gonna get a chance to do that right now. So, Amen. welcome. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, before we get started, I do have a special greeting. Hey, mom and dad. <laughs> I knew I was going to do this. Appreciate you. <clears throat> okay, here we go. I have, a, I have a question for you this morning that is going to trigger the majority of college football fans in this room. Are you ready? No, you're not ready. Okay. My name is Strider. We're going to try this again. I have a question this morning for you that will trigger the majority of college football fans in this room. Are you ready? Yes. Thank you. The question is, who's got it better than us? Nobody. Yes. The Michigan fans, the Michigan fans in this room, and there's a guy who walked in, sorry I didn't get a chance to shake your hand and meet you yet, who walked in with a Michigan jacket, are loving this question because... If you haven't been paying attention to college football, Michigan won the national championship on, uh, on Monday night. And Jason Hamilton, uh, who is a lifelong Michigan fan, he plays the electric guitar. He stands back here. You'll see him when we close in song. He's a little bit more aerodynamic than me because he doesn't have any facial hair. But he, he stands back here and he plays the electric guitar like a national champion would. And uh, he's phenomenal. And they're having the time of their life because Michigan won the national championship on Monday. And Michigan's coach is a guy named Jim Harbaugh. And uh, he is the son of Jack Harbaugh, longtime football coach. And uh, Jack had two sons, also had some daughters, Jack and, uh, uh, excuse me, Jim and John. Jim is the head coach at Michigan. His other son, John, is the head coach for the Baltimore Ravens. And at an early age, Jack taught uh, his boys to respond to that question that I just asked you, which is who's got it better than us? Nobody. And so just in case you don't have any context uh, for what in the world is going on, here is a video of Jack Harbaugh and his wife. We got a thing in our family that we'll use for a long time. And it goes like this. Who's got it better than us? 
So the Bible says, <clears throat> you know, to rejoice with those who rejoice. And by the way, I have no dog in this fight. Matter of fact, I'm a North Carolina, actually I'm a Flagler college fan at, 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 at my core, but I'm also, I went to University of Chapel Hill at North Carolina, so I'm a Tar Heel fan. Yeah, amen. And, uh, <clears throat> and I actually don't like the University of Michigan. And, uh, <laughs> but, <clears throat> but it was, the illustration was too good to pass up, so we're just going to go with it. And, uh, but like the Jack said that right after Michigan beat Alabama, sorry, Alabama fans. Uh, there's some other teams that may or may not, uh, we're not going to go there. Okay. Jack taught his boys to answer the question, who's got it better than us? Nobody. And, uh, did, did that from an early age. And my hope, my hope this morning, the thing I've been praying for is that you and I, at the end of today's message, no matter who we cheer for, would answer honestly to the question, who's got it better than us? Nobody because of Jesus. And so, before we jump in and look at God's word, let me pray for us. Jesus, I don't deserve to be standing on this stage. Matter of fact, when I reflect and look back at my life of 41 years, I just cannot believe that uh, you would have me doing this. And yet, here we are, because nobody's got it better than us. So as we open your word, pray that you would make it come alive. Pray that you would help us to understand our blessedness. Pray that you would help us to admit that we are poor in spirit. And pray that you would help us to believe in, stand on the, the reality, the promise that ours is the kingdom of heaven. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Football players work all season, all year, for the last game of the year, the national championship to be able to experience the good life. And there is something within each of us that longs for that same thing too, that longs to experience a joy and a peace and a confidence that we are and have the good life. And marketers know this, and so they sell us things all the time and pull on our heartstrings. Our hearts know it because, let's be honest, you and I, are constantly chasing the next good meal, the next vacation, the next trip, to be able to answer the question for ourselves, I'm living the good life. And the reality is that Jesus offers the good life. Last week, we started looking at Matthew chapter 5, which is known as the Sermon on the Mount. That's Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And um, Smiley started talking last week about the context of what Jesus is saying and doing when he gives this sermon. And just as a, a little recap, Jesus is on a mountain. He has just named his 12 apostles. And now he's going to sit down and teach his apostles, a crowd of disciples, and then a larger crowd of seemingly just interested, curious people, what it looks like to live a kingdom lifestyle. What it looks like to live and to have a, the good life. He's going to tell them eight things. And a lot of times, um, these eight things kind of have a tendency to dominate our thinking about what this sermon is all about. These eight statements that Jesus makes, the first of which we're going to talk today, are known as the Beatitudes. And that word is simply a Latin word that means blessed or happy. So Beatitudes, blessed or happy. And Jesus is going to tell his leadership team 
this is what you can expect, and this is what it looks like to live the kingdom lifestyle. Jesus is very strategic in what he does because he has chosen to invest in a few. Jesus' priority in his ministry is to uh, train and equip, raise up disciple makers who will continue to make disciples and make disciples and make disciples. He has intentionally chosen to invest his life in a few men. And this is what he says to them. If you have a Bible, open it up to Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you to get one. We actually have some out in the lobby. You could pick one up on your way out. But I, I want you to be able to read God's word for yourself. It'll be up on the screen. Uh, but I would love for you to have and bring with you a copy of Scripture. And so if you don't have one, we'd love to be able to give one to you as a gift. Matthew chapter 5, we're only looking at one verse today. That's actually not true. We're going to jump all over Scripture. But for the context of the title of this message, we're only looking at one verse from, from Matthew. And it's uh, verse 3. Jesus says this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is, pay attention to that word, is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're going to talk about that is a little bit later on. One of the things I want you to understand is that in all eight of these beatitude statements, Jesus uses a similar structure in order to communicate his truth. Jesus will talk about status, he'll talk about a condition, and then he will talk about a promise or a guarantee. And so as we walk over the next eight weeks through these beatitudes, I want you to, rem to remember these three questions. And I want you to ask them as we uh, look at scripture together. And it's the same three questions we're going to be kind of diving into together this morning. Those three questions are, what is the status given by Jesus? What is the condition identified by Jesus? And then what is the promise guaranteed by Jesus? Status, condition, promise. So let's start with the status. The first thing that Jesus said is blessed. That is the status given by Jesus. Now that word, that word gets thrown around in our culture a lot. You will hear people who are believers and non-believers talk about being blessed. And what do they mean when they say that I am blessed? Sometimes that means financially, like, man, I've just blessed. I've sold a lot of real estate this month. Sometimes it means health. I'm just blessed that, you know, I, I'm feeling good right now, and I was doing badly, and now I'm feeling great, so I'm blessed. Sometimes it means family or relationships or circumstances, but one of the questions we need to ask is, when Jesus said the word blessed, what did he mean? What is his context, and does it align with our use and thought and definition of the word blessed or blessed? And one of the most helpful things you can do in Scripture is when a word appears, you can look back to, see, to ask the question, when did it first get used? Because oftentimes where it's first used gives it a lot of context and a lot of meaning to help us understand the word. And so do you know where the word blessed or blessed is first used in Scripture? In the very first chapter. Some of you know it. In the very first chapter. So here's what we're going to do. If you have a Bible, I want you to understand, we're going to look <clears throat> at a number of different passages, and we're going to trace the history of blessed to cursed to blessed 
And I don't want you to feel the pressure to have to flip in your Bible to all these different places. And so sometimes it's great to look at Scripture for yourself. Sometimes it's just better to listen to somebody else read it and to read along the screen. So I'm going to let you make that decision. But we're going to look. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 1 together because this is the first time that God uses the word blessed or blessed for our context. You with me? You're not with me. <clears throat> this is the first time that God uses the word blessed or blessing in this context. You with me? Yes. You're with me. Okay. Genesis 1, 21 through 22 <clears throat> reads, So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And, here it is, God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the sea and let birds multiply on the earth. The first time the word blessed is used is in the context of God when he looks at his creation. He makes the animals, he makes the birds, he says it is good, and then he uses the word, and God blessed them. The second use of the word blessing comes immediately after these set of verses. We're going to look a couple of verses later at 26 through 28. I'm going to read those to you as well. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Here it is. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven, <clears throat> excuse me, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The second time God uses the word blessing, blessed, is in context with what he created again. And he proclaims that over the people whom he has created. When you look at the core of what the word blessed or blessed means, it means approval or approved. So I want you to know this. When you think about the word or say the phrase, I am blessed, from a biblical perspective, what you're talking about is you are talking about approval. But this isn't any kind of approval. This is God approval. God looks at his creation and says, it is good, and he blesses. He gives them his approval. And so to the Jewish ear, their understanding when Jesus says the word blessed is this communicates something very specific and special about our relationship with God. Blessing, approval. You know what God does after blessing and approval? He gives both the creation and man something to do. And it, and it rings true of another scripture we're going to look at in just a second of being blessed for a blessing. But the reality is that when we look around our world, the picture of what we have in Genesis chapter 1 doesn't match the reality in which we live. And you've got to ask, stop and ask the question, what happened? And what happened in Genesis chapter 3 is the opposite of what happens in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 is all about God, God blessing. 
Genesis chapter 3 is all about God cursing. Not that kind of cursing. The opposite of blessing, which begs the question, what happened? Well, when God created all things, he created two people, Adam and Eve. And he said, everything is yours except for that tree in the garden. Don't eat of it. And then what happens? Satan comes along, an enemy, and says, did God really say? And begins to pick and poke and prod at what God really said. Are you really blessed? You you realize that if you eat of that tree, that you're going to become like God. You know that God's holding out on you? (laughs) You really think that God blessed you? Then Then why wouldn't he let you eat from that tree? And this argument takes place, and Adam and Eve take from the tree because the temptation is to want to be God, to want to be in his spot, to call our own shots, to make our own decisions. So they take from this tree, and what happens is that cursing enters the world. This is Genesis 3, and I'm going to read this to you as well. 14 through 19 says this, the, Lord's, the Lord God said in response to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And then he makes a promise. In the midst of this, as we're tracing this story, the one story of Scripture Throughout all of the Bible, I want you to understand that God makes a promise. That even in the midst of this cursing, God is going to promise a future blessing. Don't miss this. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, here it is. You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of, out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Because of their choice, because of our choice, what we deserve is cursing. And the reason that I told you that at the end of today, what I hope is that all of us would walk out of here saying to ourselves, who's got it better than us? Nobody. Is because... God tells a story of redemption. And his story of redemption includes restoring a status of blessedness to his people. And this picture, as you read through Genesis and as you, as you read through the Old Testament, as you read into the New Testament, this picture of how he's going to do that through a person becomes clearer and clearer. But we go from Genesis 3 to Genesis 12. And God has a conversation with a man and makes another promise. And the promise is, one day I will restore this status of blessing to my people. Let's read it together. This is Genesis 2, I mean, sorry, excuse me, Genesis 12, 1 through 2. Now the Lord 
said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. Here it is. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. God gets very specific with Abram. And he says, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And he tells Abram specifically that from his lineage, a great, 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 great grandson, God will bless his people and he will give them the responsibility, the opportunity for being a blessing to others. God makes this promise. And so, you know what Matthew writes when he starts his gospel, his account of the life and ministry of Jesus? Do you know the first thing that Matthew writes? This is something that I've never really paid attention to. I just kind of glossed over to try to get started as I read it this week. But this is really, really cool what Matthew does. I want you to look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is what Matthew writes to his audience. And you got to recognize that Matthew understood that a lot of Jewish people were going to be reading this account of the life and ministry of Jesus. And they were going to be asking the question, who is he and is he the real deal? And so Matthew, in his gospel account, writes this as the opening line. The book of the genealogy, meaning the history, the men who came before, all the things that God promised all of these men in the past. This is Jesus' genealogy. The genealogy of Jesus Christ, and then he names two people. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew writes so that his audience understands that Jesus is the son of David. He is the king who has come to bring the kingdom. And he is the son of Abraham. And so when you are a Jew and you hear that phrase, son of Abraham, your mind immediately goes back to Genesis 12. And you go, I wonder if Matthew is saying that Jesus is the promised one from that that time and that promise from long ago. And Matthew wants to make it clear to his readers, Jesus is the king and he is the son of Abraham. And what he's done is he's come to earth. The king has come to restore this status of blessedness to his creation. Paul understands it and writes this to the Ephesian church. This is Ephesians 1.3. Paul says, blessed be the God of our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, pay attention, who has blessed us in Christ. What is the method by which God blesses us? It is through his son, Jesus, the Christ. And he blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. And so when Jesus teaches the beginning of this sermon, blessed He is saying to those who have believed, his disciples, his apostles, those who have put their faith and trust in Christ, this is your status. Blessed. One of the questions we have to ask is, what is the condition for this blessedness? And here's where I want you to pay attention. This is really, really important. The Beatitudes and what Jesus is going to say next is not a formula 
that you can subscribe to for entry into heaven. Jesus is not saying, go out and do all of these things, therefore you will then receive God's blessing. That would be a works-based religion. And that's not what Jesus is describing to his disciples, his apostles, the people of God. What Jesus is doing is he's describing the condition of the people who are blessed. I don't know if that made sense. Following me? You're not following me. You you are, you don't mean to repeat myself? Okay, great. (laughs) Picked up on this. Third time's the charm. You cannot cannot earn your way to heaven. And there have been people who have taken this message or this sermon and have preached it in such a way in which the design and the intent of it is to uh, scare an audience into thinking that they then therefore need to go do all of these things in order to guarantee themselves uh, a ticket to heaven. And that's not what Jesus is doing. He is, he, is, he is describing, and I don't know if I'm doing a good job of saying this, and so if you're confused by this, come up and ask me later because I'll, I'll try to explain it more. But what, is, what Jesus is doing is he's trying to describe the condition of the people who have the kingdom. And so what does Jesus describe the condition as? Back to Matthew 5.3. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And so you've got to stop and ask the question, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? And here's what we're going to do. We're going to look, we're going to look at, a, at an encounter between Jesus and a woman. So turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. And we're going to read a story about a woman with a really difficult condition. And she's had this condition for a long, long time. And she makes a decision that changes the trajectory of her life forever. This is Mark 5. We're going to read verses 25 through 34 together. And as we read it, I want you to keep in mind that this woman's physical conditions are representative of her spiritual need. Does that make sense? Okay, Matthew 5, we'll talk about it a little bit more. Matthew 5, 25 through 34. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garments. For she said, if I touch his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and asked, who touched my garments? His disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, this is a status statement right here. He said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. 
So this woman, who had had a condition for 12 years, seemingly went to every physician, every doctor, anybody that told her they can help, went to them and seemingly has spent all of her money trying to remedy this condition. And instead of making things better, what it says is that things actually got worse. And so we don't know, we don't know where and when this woman heard about Jesus, but it's obvious that one point in her life she made a decision. And she said, I believe that Jesus is the one who could remedy my condition. And she leaves wherever she is, and she goes, and she reaches out, and she touches Jesus' clothes. And what the scripture says is that Jesus senses in himself that power has gone out from him. And at that moment, she was healed of her disease. And then he stops, and he asks a question. Who touched my garments? And all of his disciples are like, what, do you not see the crowd? Like, everybody's bumping up against everybody. What do you, Jesus, what do you mean, who touched my garments? But seemingly, this question, who touched my garments, was enough to help this woman understand that this was Jesus speaking to her. And so she comes, and she falls on her knees, and she tells Jesus her whole story. And Jesus responds with a status. Daughter. Whenever Jesus calls someone a son or a daughter, it signifies that they are a part of the kingdom. Matter of fact, he says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? This woman was at the end of her rope. No one could remedy her condition. She came to Jesus. She didn't bring anything with her. The only thing that she brought with her is her need. She had nothing to offer Jesus. Because what can you offer the one who has it all? And yet, she falls on her knees and tells Jesus her whole story. She gets real specific about her condition, about her neediness, about her need for his healing. And by the way, all of these physical things that are happening in her life are simply a representation of what her real need is, which is the fact that her status is one of cursedness. And Jesus changes her status because he calls her daughter. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? It means that you and I admit to Jesus our need for him. Matter of fact, we need to get specific about that because the reality is that scripture describes us as cursed ones because of our sin, because of the same proclivity in us that we saw in Adam and Eve to want to take God's place, to want to call our own shots, to think that we can do life better than Jesus can. Because of our sinfulness, what we deserve is God's curse. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. And honestly, 
that needs, that can only be received. Like if you understand that you're poor in spirit, then one of the things that you ought to do is say to God, thank you for revealing my poor in spiritedness. I know that's not a word. Do better than me. That is our response. It is not something that can be earned. I can't tell you go work on your poor in spiritedness. You just have to receive as a gift from the Lord the reality of your condition. So what's the condition? Blessed are the poor in spirit. And then what's the promise included in this verse? Let's finish Matthew 5, 3. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Last week, uh, Smiley talked and taught us that when we hear the word kingdom, we need to think about two twos. The first set of twos is what is required to have a kingdom. You need two things. Last week, we talked about you need a king and you need subjects. And here's a question for you. Have you ever stopped to consider that Jesus is not only Savior, but that he is king? Have you stopped to consider that Jesus is king? And I realize, like, that's the equivalent of me asking, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? But, like, this, this is a really important question for us to consider. Because you owe allegiance to a king. When the king says, hey, subjects, I want you to do and be about these things, you don't say, I don't really like that. You say, yes, my king. In order for there to be a kingdom, the first set of twos, you need a king and you need subjects. I think it is worth spending some time considering the question, what would it mean for me to realize and believe more and more that I am a subject of the king? The other thing, the other set of twos that we learned when we hear the word kingdom needs to trigger in our minds Two phrases, now and not yet. I told you at the beginning of the message that the uh, verb tense, the way that Jesus says this in Matthew 5, 3 is really important. And I want you to pay attention to this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When Matthew writes these eight beatitudes, he makes a sandwich. Don't you love sandwiches? I love sandwiches. I'm getting hungry. Shouldn't have done that. Matthew writes, for theirs is the kingdom in verse 3, and he writes, for theirs is the kingdom in verse 10. Present tense verbs. For theirs is the kingdom. Meaning that when the king is there, the kingdom is there also. And one of the message that, messages that John the Baptist proclaimed that Jesus picked up on, we're going to read that in just a second, is that the king is coming. Get ready, the king is coming. And when Jesus got here, he said the king is here. So Jesus says, therefore, theirs is the kingdom because the king is here. And when you put your faith and trust in Christ, Jesus fills you with his Holy Spirit. And so the reality is that If you have put your faith and trust in Christ, you have the king and you have the kingdom now. 
And in the midst of this, verses 4 through 9, Jesus makes six future promises. He uses the word shall. We're going to look at that one next week when we read verse 4. He makes six future promises to help us understand that we have the kingdom now, but we don't have all the kingdom in its fullness yet. But he promises, he repeats, there's a status, there's a condition, and there's a future promise. Following me? Okay. Great. Don't make me repeat it. Jesus makes available this kingdom to those who are poor in spirit and declares them blessed. Colossians 1, 13 through 14, describes it like this. Paul writes, He, meaning Jesus, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom, this is what we have in Jesus, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Which begs the question, if you're not poor in spirit, then what are you? And Colossians 1 tells us that if we're not poor in spirits, then what we have is darkness. That because of what the things that we've done and said and thought, that we are participants, citizens of a kingdom, a domain of darkness. And the story of the gospel is that the king has come. The king has lived, the king has died, the king has risen and transferred from that kingdom of darkness those who put their faith and trust in him to a kingdom of his beloved son. When you're in darkness, you cannot see the reality of your sin. And if God has shown you your spiritual condition, your need of him, our response to him is thank you. That has to be received. And there are moments in our lives that we wake up to the reality of the condition that we're in. I had a friend... E, what's the, uh, what's, the, what's the word for manatee? Do you know it? Manatee? Okay, great. It's like sea cow. I don't know. You can... Oh, yes. Yeah? Okay, got it. Do you know it now? Still don't know. It's good. Okay. Shouldn't have put you on the spot. What am I doing? Such a rookie. <laughs> I have a friend. I have a friend uh, who was on, I was on Young Life staff with for a long time. And uh, he grew up in South Florida. And in high school, he and his buddies... Uh, did something that if there were cell phones around at the time, they would have been immediately canceled for all scholarships removed, everything. It was awful. You'll see why in just a second. <clears throat> he had a dock at his house that uh, stretched out into the intercoastal. And so after school, he and his buddies would come home and they would stand on the dock and they would look out into the water and they would wait for manatees to come by. And the manatees you know, would come close to the dock, I think because there's running water and, you know, I don't know a lot about manatees, but apparently they're, whatever, attracted to the docks. And they would wait until the manatees would go by and then they would take off running. And they would get, yeah, all the gasps, yep. They would get to the end of the dock <clears throat> and they would jump off, boom, land on those manatees, bounce off, it didn't hurt them. Land on those manatees, that's what he told me at least. Uh, <laughs> not sure I believe him. 
land on those manatees, bounce off, swim back to the, you know, the dock. I told you they'd be canceled if, if there were, you know, cell phones at that time. So one day comes, one day comes, Chris is on his dock. Um, he sees a manatee floating by at the end of the dock. He's like, this one's mine. Takes off running, jumps, hits the manatee, and instead of bouncing off the manatee, he sinks into the very middle of it. It was a dead manatee that was floating down the intercoastal and rotting. And now he's in the middle of this dead manatee up to his neck and all of that and totally stuck. And all of his friends had to jump in and rescue him from this manatee. There are moments... There are moments in our lives to which we recognize that because of our sinfulness, because of the things that we've done, because of our cursedness, that is the condition that we're in. That we are up to our necks in rotting manatee. That's our condition. That's the condition of of this woman who has this encounter with Jesus. That's the condition of all of us in this room before Christ. My friend Chris needed someone to literally pull him up out of the manatee. I've lost all of you, haven't I? (laughs) I'm probably going to get canceled after telling this story, but... In the case of darkness, regarding your condition, the moment the light comes on, the moment that you understand your spiritual condition before God, that you are in great need, that you bring nothing to the table, if you are willing to admit that and be specific about your condition to Jesus, grace enters your life. Because the promise of Colossians 1, 13 through 14. Look at verse 14. In whom, meaning Jesus, we have redemption. You know what the word redemption means? It simply means that you have been bought with a great price. That's what the word redeemed means. Bought with a great price. And in our case, what's the great price? It's a king who left the comfort of heaven, came to earth, lived a sinless life. It's a king who said, I'll trade places with people who are on death row, who pe- with people who are up to their neck in manatee. I'll trade places with them and I will die. Not only will I die, but I'm going to rise again, proving that I've conquered sin and death. And then I'm going to make a promise that whoever believes will not perish but have eternal life. That's what it means when when we say that we have redemption because Jesus has accomplished it. I don't know. I'm going to give you a chance at the end of this message, which is coming to a close in just a few minutes, to admit your spiritual poverty to God. If you have never done that before, I would encourage you to do that today. I'm going to help you when we close. In whom we have redemption. 
We have been bought with a great price. Jesus gave his blood, his life for us. And he promised that our sins would be forgiven. God doesn't wink at us and let us in the back door. No, no, no. There was a penalty that needed to be paid, and Jesus paid it on our behalf. So the promise for theirs is the kingdom because this has been accomplished. And so we hold, we hold those present assurances. We have the kingdom, and we will experience the kingdom in all of its fullness when Jesus returns one day. How do you enter the kingdom? Mark records it like this. This is verse 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God. So what is Jesus doing? He is telling people the truth of the gospel. And what does he tell them? Verse 15, and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. And this is what he says. This is your response to when the kingdom comes. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent. Recognize your spiritual condition. Believe that Jesus is the king who lived, who died, who rose. And then Jesus makes another invitation. He tells people, follow me. Follow the king. Let me lead, you follow. Let me call the shots, you follow. Repent, believe, follow. Admit, believe, commit. That our part, our part, is to repent, believe, and follow the king. So here's what I want to encourage you with, challenge you with this week. This is our action step. And I want you to admit, I want to encourage you, invite you, challenge you to admit that you are poor in spirit. This is not, this is not just for people who are currently in a kingdom of darkness and who need to be transferred into a kingdom of light. But this is also for you and me too. Because when you read through Scripture in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and Smiley invited you to do this earlier, and I want to invite you to do the same. Just jump into reading through Scripture with us this year. When you read, you will hear from men who are very obviously within the kingdom of God. And over and over again, they are continually confessing their spiritual poverty to God. And so... What I want you to do is when you came in, hopefully you were given a study. Uh, if not, there are some connect cards in front of you. I want to encourage you, challenge you, invite you to take one of those out, and I want you to write down and admit to the Lord your spiritual poverty. And here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you a few examples of what that looks like and sounds like. We've already talked about the woman who was bleeding, but here's a couple more examples throughout all of Scripture. This is what Abraham's poor in spirit statement sounded like. 
This is Genesis 18. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Here's the spiritual poverty part. I who am but dust and ashes. Here's what Moses sound like. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? But Moses said to the Lord, Oh my Lord, I am not eloquent. He gets real specific. Either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and tongue. Here's what Job sounds like. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. One of the things that happens is when you hear the gospel, you respond to it in one way or the other. Job says, now my eyes see you, and therefore, when I understand my condition, I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. This is what King David says about being poor in spirit. He says, the sacrifices of God. What can you bring to God? Just your need. What can you bring to God? Nothing you have to offer. But the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Here's what John the Baptist writes about being poor in spirit. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. When Peter has an encounter with Jesus, and all of a sudden there's this miraculous catch of fish, this is how Peter responds. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Peter encountered the trauma of holiness. And then Paul, Paul writes his poor in spiritedness all over his letters. But here's one example. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is, in my flesh. This is not scripture, but as I thought about, as I thought about asking you, inviting you, challenging you to do this, I wanted to write my own. So this is mine. Dad, there is so much more to you than I ever imagined. You know me inside and out. You know my need for approval, my tendency to control, my unwillingness to believe. Jesus, let me receive your verdict that my status is that of a blessed one, an insider in the kingdom of heaven. What I want you to do for your action step this week is to write your own poor in spirit statement. It doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to be fancy. But it needs to be honest, and it needs to be specific. And then what I want you to do is I want you to take that statement in prayer before the Lord. Bring that neediness to him. And then I want you to share it with somebody that you trust. Could be a spouse, could be a small group member. Share it with someone who you trust because when we get specific about our poor inspiritedness, our spiritual poverty, grace fills those voids. What do you think would happen? What do you think would happen if all of us left today understanding our condition, our status, and the promise that Jesus gives us? 
What do you think would happen if there were several hundred people that went to work tomorrow understanding their condition, their status, blessed, and the promise that the kingdom of God is here now? Don't let me down. I'm going to ask you this question one more time. You ready? Who's got it better than us? Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, the, as cheesy as that is, it's true that because you give us an opportunity to believe in you and have eternal life. And Lord, I, I, I pray that if there are people in this room who for the first time are recognizing their spiritual poverty before you, I pray, Jesus, that you would prompt them to respond in faith. Jesus, we are spiritually poor. We bring nothing to the table except our need. And Jesus, you're the king who lived and died and rose again and made a way to bring people from a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light. And I pray that if there are people in this room who are awakening to that reality, that they would tell you that now. Jesus, give us an ability, give us courage to name our spiritual poverty before you. Help us to be specific. Help us to be intentional to bring that to you in prayer. This week, to others this week, Lord, would you transform our church into a place where brothers and sisters in Christ can bring their spiritual poverty to one another and experience grace. And change our community as you transform us too. And we pray all of this in your name, Jesus. Amen.